0: I get the privilege this morning of um, introducing Marty Durin. Marty was born at a young age. He really was. and uh, Yes. Um, and uh, actually, he grew up here at Mount Zion, in all seriousness. It was here at Mount Zion that he recognized that he had a need for a Savior, and it was here at Mount Zion that he learned what it meant to be a follower of Christ. But beyond that, it was here at Mount Zion that he was called into ministry, um, today, he's here with his wife, Sonia, that he met here at Mount Zion, and uh, they are married. They have three children. Their daughter, Abby, is here with them today, I believe. Miss Becky and Mr. Richard are his parents. Uh, Marty has served in pastorates in Georgia and Tennessee since 1989, but currently leads the Pastors Internet Channel Network for LifeWay Christian Resources and uh, I'm so grateful he's here today, and I'm grateful you get the opportunity to hear him speak the word of God. So Marty, please come.
1: Thanks, Chris. It's good to see everybody. I, uh, it's different being back here as an old person <laughs> than as a young person, but uh, it's really good to see you. I need to ask two questions. First, is Warren Griffin here? Warren, did you make it? No, is John Blake here? John, I am so glad to see you, my brother. Please make sure we talk to each other after. I want you to meet my wife and the whole nine yards and my family. And is my sister still here? Okay. I promise in Jesus' name you were included on that information I sent him, and he decided not to mention your name, okay? Uh That's not exactly true, but I did include you in the thing. She's going to yell at me at lunch for not putting her name in the introduction. So I wanted to make sure that that was clear. Thanks for being here. We're going to be in the book of Esther this morning. If you're not familiar with the Bible, you're new to church or new to Christianity or whatever, Esther's in the Old Testament, which is the first part of your Bible. So if you have a paper Bible or if you have an app, I'm good with you using your app on your smartphone or something like that. Uh, In the Old Testament, just before the book of... Psalms, which doesn't start with an S like it ought to. It starts with a P. And then the book of Job, which is actually pronounced Job. Right before that, you find the book of Esther. If we were going through the Old Testament in chronological order, Esther, Ezra, and Nehemiah would actually be at the end of the Old Testament. So when you open your Bible to Esther, and it's right in the, kind of in the center of the Old Testament... Just remind yourself that the events in the book of Esther are actually taking place at the end of the Old Testament, not in the middle of the Old Testament. Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther lead up to the period that we call the 400 silent years, which are the years between the Old Testament and the New Testament. So if you're going along regular old history like you'd study in school or college, and you get to this period of time on a, a secular timeline, just a timeline of everything that's happened in the history between the, the actual events of the Old Testament that end with Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, and the beginning of the New Testament, which begin, the, begins with the book of Matthew, there are 400 years where God did not give any divine inspiration of Scripture. And so we have to go to secular history to find out about the Maccabees and all of those cool guys and gals that lived back in that time. But nearing the end of the Old Testament before the 400 silent years, we come to the, one of the most amazing and fun and cool stories ...of the entire Old Testament. There are kings and queens and murder and revenge, just like the princess bride of the Old Testament right there in the Bible. It is so stinking cool, and it's only like nine or ten chapters. If you've never read the book of Esther, your homework assignment is between Olympic events to read the book of Esther this afternoon... ...and just take in the whole entire thing. It is really, really good. But what we learn from the book of Esther is this. What is God doing when we don't see God doing anything? That's really the the sum of the book of Esther is what is God doing when we don't see God doing anything? Now I want to ask the question, has there ever been a time in your life that you really did not feel like God was either A, doing anything at all in your life, or B, not doing anything worth bragging about? Anybody? I want to tell you I've been there. There have been times in my life that I wondered what God was doing, if God was doing anything at all in and around me, And the book of Esther is designed to give us confidence that even when we don't see God working, even when we don't identify God as doing something, God is always at work. There's a unique thing about the book of Esther, unique to every other book in the Bible. Does anybody know what it is? Not my mama. Listen, she can't answer because she knew Esther personally, all right? Lillian? The name of God is not mentioned, prayer is not mentioned, none of the things that we normally associate, you enterprise and see your husband after church to find out what it is. Uh, The things that we normally associate with holiness and godliness and scripture and Old Testament and New Testament and God being at work, the things that we normally associate with that, the reading of scripture and prayer and calling on his name, are noticeably absent from the entire book of Esther And yet God was still at work the entire time because he rescued the Jewish people from annihilation. There was a planned genocide, a planned holocaust. It would not have killed every Jewish person, but it would have killed every Jewish person person in that area of Persia at the time because of the wickedness of one man whose name was Haman. What I want to talk to us about this morning, and this is as much to me as it is to you and anybody else, is this idea of living as exiles. Living as exiles. In this period of time, the Jewish people, the majority of them, did not reside in and around Jerusalem. They'd been exiled. They were living under foreign domination. And this had, it had been this way for a quite a long time. So many of the people that were Jewish did not know any other living arrangement other than growing up in Persia under a pagan king and mixed religions because other people had been taken over and brought into captivity as well. So there are many, many, many kinds of exiles, and God's people, the Jewish people, were living as exiles in a different country. And the reason that I think this is a word that we need to come back to today is because the way things that are going in our world, and I'm not pointing at one specific thing, but generally speaking, the way things are going in our world, then the idea of God's people being exiles can be becoming more and more and more a reality over the next years. Now, we we have... ...multiple options, but we have two big bad options that we can choose. The first big bad option is we can react negatively to ungodliness around us. And we can cry and whimper and crawl up in a hole and just beg and plead for Jesus to return... Well, I attended this church back in the 70s when Jesus was about to return. Anybody remember that? Jesus was going to come back before the service got over some Sunday nights. It was, I mean, we we lived with the idea that Jesus was going to return, not just imminently at any moment, but immediately in the next moment. That was how we lived our lives. Well, here we are now 40 some odd years later. Jesus has not returned yet. He will one day. He hasn't returned yet. And I submit that we need to reevaluate how we interact with culture, how we interact with people, how we look at the future, how we evaluate the past, and how we live in the present based on the reality that we got it wrong for a lot of years and Jesus may not come back in our lifetime. If Jesus doesn't come back in our lifetime, it certainly is going to make a difference into how we view the future, how we view those around us, and how we view the changes that are coming into our lives. There's a couple of main things that I want us to look at in the book of Esther. We're going to be in chapter 4, verses 14, 15, 16, and 17, and actually we're going to back up to verse 13 and start there since it starts a paragraph. There's two main things that we're going to look at, and that's this, the invisible providence of God and the visible faithfulness of God's people, the invisible providence of God and the visible faithfulness of God's people. Let's look at chapter 4, verses 13 to 17. You know what? We've been going to a church that does this, and I haven't done this ever in my ministry, but I'm going to do it to honor the church we just joined, which y'all stand those of you who are physically able, would you stand and we're going to read God's Word together. Esther chapter 4, verse 13. Mordecai told the messenger to reply to Esther, Don't you think that you will, you don't think that you will escape the fate of all the Jews because you're in the king's palace? If you keep silent at this time, liberation and deliverance will come to the Jewish people from another place... But you and your father's house will be destroyed. Who knows, perhaps you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go and assemble all the Jews who can be found in Susa and fast for me. Don't eat or drink for three days, day or night. I and my female servants will also fast the same way. And that I will, after that I will go to the king, even if it's against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went and did everything Esther had ordered him. Thank you. You can be seated. Here's the setting. The king's name in, the, in scripture is Ahasuerus. You know him from secular history as Xerxes. Same guy, different name, different recognition. Xerxes was married to a queen whose name was Vashti or Vashti. He had put her in a position that was going to make her look bad and she refused to play along. As a result, he deposed the queen. She's no longer queen. He's still the king. She's no longer queen. And so he sits out, he sets out on a search for a new queen. So they go through the entire kingdom, and they find all of the, the prettiest and the you know best-built women, and, and I'm, not even, I'm not even making that up. In fact, when they describe Esther, they say she's pretty and got a good figure. That's the HCSB, so I'm not even making that up, okay? Good-looking and has a great body. That's what he was looking for. So he sends all these people across the kingdom. They begin to look for the new queen. And out of all improbability from a human perspective... This young Jewish girl, who is probably less than 25 years old, possibly still a teenager, was brought to the queen, Brought to the king. He falls madly in love with her. He makes her the queen. In the process of this time, these things are happening, because all these different women are coming before the king, so he can choose. Esther's uncle Mordecai overheard a plot to kill the king. And he turned in these two guys who were plotting to kill the king, and they were put to death for sedition. Over the course of time, one of the king's right-hand men, whose name was Haman, decided he didn't like Uncle Mordecai. And so he put his own plot into practice so that not only would Mordecai be killed, but all of the Jews, all of Mordecai's people were going to be killed. So this is going to be a national plot to commit genocide on the Jewish people. Mordecai found out, Esther found out, And they schemed in order to try to alleviate this. So Esther was going to do this one thing. She was going to go of her own accord and make a visit to the king. Now you say, well, queen, certainly. Now this is not like, you know, 2016 America where men and women just walk into the room and talk to each other. Where the president's wife just can, you know text or get him on sale or something like that and say hey can we you know walk down to the west wing and hang out for a few minutes it's nothing like that i mean this was one of those deals if the queen if the queen never mind a prince or somebody if the queen went into the king's presence without him bringing her in she could be put to death now how's that for a power trip how's that for having the ability to get something done all right he could have her put to death esther knows this So Mordecai says, here's here's what we need to do. You need to go to the king and tell him what's going on, that Haman is trying to wipe out all the Jews. These are your people, Esther. Haman wants to wipe out all the Jews. You go to the king, and Esther says, I haven't seen the king in 30 days. And if I go in and he does not extend the golden scepter my way, in other words, if he does not give a visible sign of favor, then I could be put to death. And Mordecai says, who knows? But perhaps you've come into the kingdom for this very time. But if not, God is still going to save his people. He's still going to rescue. He's still going to redeem. They will make it. Esther, the question is for you, are you going to be the instrument that God might choose to use by being obedient to him? Now, in all of these things, God has been working behind the scenes. There's no reasonable way that we should think that Mordecai would have overheard a plot to kill the king when all he did was go stand on the street corner every day and listen to guards talk. There's no reason to to think that Mordecai would have been able to get a message to the king about this betrayal. There's There's certainly no reason to think that out of all the women in all of the kingdom that he would have picked a Jewish girl whose uncle overheard the plot to be his queen. There's no reason to think that that they would have known anything about the plot to kill the Jews ahead of time and enough time to intervene so that the Jews weren't killed. There's no reason to think that any of these things would have just happened. It wasn't luck. There's no such thing as luck. It was the providence of God. Now, I remember when I was a kid that people would say things like this. You know, somebody would ask, hey, are you going to be at this meeting? Are you going to be at prayer meeting? Are you going to be at Sunday school? And people would answer in this way. If I'm not providentially hindered, I'll be there. Yeah. Anybody ever heard that? You probably have to be a certain age to have heard that. If I'm not providentially hindered, I'll be there. I had no idea what that meant. I mean, maybe their wife's name was Providence and she was going to just smack them around. They couldn't make it a prayer meeting. I mean, I had no idea what the possibility was. But as I learned, what I learned was that God is providential. Miracles are God working in the foreground. Miracles are God working in the forefront, where you can see what's going on. So when we think about God working, most of the time what we think about is, you know, Samson killing a thousand Philistines, or Samson ripping the jaws of a lion open, or Noah and the ark, or Jesus walking on water, or Elijah calling down fire out of heaven, or Elisha, you know, splitting the, the river and walking across. We think about all of those kinds of things when we think when we think about God working. But I want to ask you this question is it even logical to think that the only time God has ever worked in human history is when a miracle happened the providence of god is god working behind the scenes it's it's where you don't see him doing stuff That's the providence of God. So when these old timers would say, I'll be there if I'm not providentially hindered, what what they were saying was they were giving an acknowledgement that God was at work in the world and their plan might not specifically line up with his plan on Wednesday night at 7 o'clock. Their plan was to be there Wednesday night at 7 o'clock. But if God providentially for some reason decided they didn't need to be there, they'd be somewhere else. That's why we, as believers, we don't rely on luck. We don't rely on chance. We don't rely. We don't, we, whatever is just not the verbiage of Christianity. It, I know it's the verbiage of today, but it's not. We don't come to God and pray. Oh well, whatever. You know, I got a prayer request, and you know, but whatever. My mama's sick, but whatever. You know, I mean, that's not the way we pray. We understand that God's will doesn't always align with ours, and ours doesn't always align with God's, but we give God the the room in our hearts and in our minds to be working without necessarily showing himself at work. One of the old religious confessions was called the Belgic Confession, and it taught the doctrine of providence in this way, quote, it gives us unspeakable comfort since it teaches us that nothing can happen to us by chance, but only by the arrangement of our heavenly Father. Nehemiah kind of preceded this by saying in Nehemiah 9.6, You alone are Yahweh. You created the heavens, the highest heavens with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that are in them. You give life to all of them, and the heavenly hosts worship you. Now when we don't recognize the providence of God, we actually do damage to our understanding of God. Because it hurts our ability to worship. It hurts our ability to praise. If we can't recognize God at work around us without seeing him specifically, then we come into a room like this and somebody says, have you had a good week? It's like, no, it's been terrible. Why? Because God has abandoned me. No, God has not abandoned you even if you can't see him at work. Even if he's not working in you at a particular moment, he's working around you all the time until he comes back to working in you and in me. So when you read USA Today or the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, or CNN.com. And you don't necessarily see a headline that says, hey, guess what, God was at work in the Olympics. And this is what happened. But you see a story that seems unrelated about one of the most recognizable Olympic figures in our era, and in part of that story, he recounts how he'd had some bad choices and got himself in some trouble. And then somebody put a book called The Purpose Driven Life in his hand. And those of us who've been believers for any length of time recognize The Purpose Driven Life is the greatest selling book outside of the Bible in the history of the world almost. Translated into, I don't know, 40 languages. It's Rick Warren's book that starts off with the, the, basically the purpose of our life is to worship. And that got into the hands of an Olympian who may not yet have professed faith in Christ, but whose life has already been changed. And they may not say Jesus, and they may not see died on the cross, and they may not see rose from the dead, but in that you can see the providence of God because somebody who's having a tough time in their life and somebody who just got off of their own DUI and somebody whose life isn't where they want it to be is going to go from that broadcast and they're going to Google purpose-driven life and they're going to buy that book and they're going to get the gospel of Jesus through it. See, that's the providential working of God. It isn't a miracle that he was on TV. It's providence that God worked through him. Just because we don't recognize it doesn't mean he isn't there. There's another thing. Does anybody in here play chess? I am the world's worst chess player. So if you like need to increase your win count, just play me sometime. I'm terrible at chess. Um, I like to think that I'm good because I know what the pieces do, but I'm terrible at it. I got no strategy. Um, and that's the thing. I can't see the board. Now, if you're Bobby Fischer or Boris Spassky or Magnus Carlsen, who was until recently the reigning world champ, may still be, then they can look at a chess board and based on the move of their opponent, they can see six or seven or eight moves into the game. What the knight's going to do, what the rook is going to do, what the bishop is going to do, what the pawns are going to do, what the king is going to do, what the queen is going to do. Well, here's the interesting thing. King Ahasuerus did not realize that he was just one of the pieces on God's chessboard that God was moving as he willed. The queen did not realize that she was just one of the pieces on God's chessboard. And bless his heart, Haman certainly did not recognize that he was a pawn about to be taken out. He had no idea. And so when we look at life, a lot of times what we look at is we look at that pawn that can move either one space straight ahead or two space straight ahead or diagonal to take somebody. And we're not from God's perspective where he's looking at the entire board which includes all of humanity, all government, all presidents, all dictators, all rulers, all legislators, all senators, all sheriffs, all residents, all everybody. And God sees the whole board and we see like part of a square. And when we can't see God at work we think somehow God's just gone to sleep and he's no longer paying attention. Oh no, it's never, ever, ever like that. God is bringing this entire world around to where we will see the redemption that he's planned from before time ever began. So we see in this, though, the faithfulness of God's people. I love the word perhaps, especially in the Bible. Mordecai does not presume upon the will of God. He just says, hey, go in there and perhaps it'll work. There's this really cool passage in 1 Samuel chapter 14 where uh, Israel is set at battle against the Philistines. The Philistines have the high ground. And Jonathan gets up one day and says to his armor bearer, hey, you know what, let's go down here to this particular pass, and we're going to climb up. Okay, so they're on the low ground, which is a disadvantageous position. We're going to climb up in full view of our enemies. And we're going to stand up in front of them and make sure we have their attention. And then if this happens, God's with us. And if this happens, God's, you know, we'll never live to tell about it. But he uses the word perhaps. We're going to climb up here, we're going to stand up and get their attention, and perhaps God will deliver them into our hand. One of the most pivotal moments of the New Testament is one that doesn't get talked about very often. It's in the book of Acts, chapter 15 or 17, you'll have to look it up. Where the New Testament leadership, the apostles, the church leadership in the city of Jerusalem, the first church, are trying to make the decision. Are Gentiles fully part of the church? Or do they have to become Jews culturally? Do they have to get circumcised physically and become Jews in order to be part of the church? This was a momentous decision. Why? Because none of us would be believers more than likely if they had decided that only Jews could be allowed or you had to become a Jew first. But I love the way that they responded. They sent a letter. They actually wrote a letter. They sent the letter. And, it, and this is what they said. They did not say, God told us X. This is what they said. You know, it seems good to us, and it seems good to the Holy Spirit, that the Gentiles should be full partakers in the blessings of God. It seems good. I mean, when is the last time you've heard somebody stand up claiming to be speaking for God, and they just said, well, you know, it seemed like a good idea to me. Perhaps if we do this, it'll all work out. I mean, who wants to follow that kind of thinking? But that's exactly what we find sometimes when we come into our relationship with God. We simply don't always know what God is going to do. So we act on the perhaps. We live on that perhaps and we act on it. And sometimes God sees that as faith and then he intervenes. Sometimes we just have to act not knowing what God is going to do. Perhaps, perhaps, we don't know that a conversation with a neighbor will turn to the gospel, but perhaps if we start a conversation with our neighbor, it might. We don't know that inviting a coworker who's a different race or a different ethnicity or a different religion, we don't know that inviting them for coffee after work or coffee during coffee break or coffee during lunch will turn to the gospel where that we might learn something about each other, but perhaps if we take that step, it will. We don't know for sure if we go down the street and invite someone to church what might happen, but perhaps they will respond. Perhaps we should stop waiting for revival in America and start being God's missionaries for gospel advance in our own communities. The older I get, the more I'm convinced that praying for revival in America is really an excuse not to evangelize personally. Because what we really want is for God to revive America without us having to do anything. What we really want is for God to change things back to where they used to be, which, frankly, I don't know what that means. I have a feeling that there are some of you in here whose grandparents or whose parents weren't able to vote who aren't really excited about America going back to the way that it used to be. Now, I'm going to, I had not planned to do this. If you're in here and you are an African American and you are old enough, that you could have registered to vote and you were not allowed to because you're black. Would you raise your hand? Anybody? Any of your parents? Grandparents? You're getting them up there. You're slow, but you're getting them up there. I know, it's cold in here. I understand. (laughs) I heard Derwin Gray say from the stage of the Southern Baptist Convention Pastors Conference the other day, I don't want to go back to a time when my people couldn't vote. And we need to understand the language that we use when we talk about revival is not going back to anything. It's going forward to where God wants us to be. That's what revival includes. It's not going back, it starts with repentance and it starts with repentance and the purpose of repentance is so we don't go back. So the idea that we're going to repent and then go backwards doesn't even exist in the idea of revival. So when we pray, now, my parents will soon have been members of the church for 40 years. I was like, I don't know, 16 years old when we moved here or something like that from a church over in another part of town. And yes, I got in trouble for some stuff, and yes, I got away with some stuff that I didn't get in trouble for. But there were formative, formative years for me in this building, not just this campus, in this building and the other building that's up on the corner and that brick building on the side over here formative years for my spiritual life and growth but i am going to tell you back in those days you could see fred mays from marcus adamson's farm on a sunday morning because he's the only black guy in the building and it was that way for a long time What I love about coming back to Mount Zion is this looks like the community that surrounds this building. It looks like the people within Clayton County. Now let me tell you something, and I'm telling you this as one who hasn't been here and one who has. In my view, from watching from a distance and understanding Chris and his heart, your greatest days are ahead if you will pursue God passionately and pursue your neighbors and friends and loved ones and schoolmates with everything that you have to give them the gospel of Jesus, your greatest days are not behind. Your greatest days are ahead. The only real question is, are you going to say, perhaps if we do this, God will bless it and let's just go do it. Let's just go see how many poor people we can reach, how many unemployed people we can reach, how many rich people we can reach, how many people we can reach. You may not know this, there are a lot of churches in the United States of America that do not reflect the community to which they are supposed to be a part. They're like an island of humanity in a sea of people. They're like an island of refuge. It's like, you want to talk about a wall, it's like some churches just have walls built around them you have to learn six tons of different passwords to get inside. And there's just no concept of that in the scriptures at all. If you want to be an island, I love this, the analogy that William Booth, founder of the Salvation Army, gave of Jesus in the sea rescuing people, bringing them to the shore and going back and getting more people and bringing them to the shore while all of those who've been rescued then move into houses and sip coffee and look out at the ocean and all of the torrent of ocean and all of the rough seas and the people dying and the people drowning and they just praise Jesus for saving people while Jesus is screaming out with a hoarse voice, why don't you come help me? And in our culture, in the day in which we live, we can can curl up in the fetal position, and we can cry and scream because there are things happening around us that we don't understand, or we can look and say, God, there's never a time in the history of this world that you're not at work, and I don't see it, but I want to see it. So in everything that's going on in my community, everything that's going on in my work, everything that's going on in my family or my country, and all the things that are going on in this world, if you will show me where you are working, then I will pray and I will do and I will serve and I will be a part of what you're doing. Living as an exile only works for the kingdom when we refuse to isolate ourselves away from the very people who need help. God has always worked when His people were in a minority. I'm not speaking racially, I'm speaking kingdom-wise. God has always worked when His people are in a minority. So just because Christians might become a, a minority in America is not necessarily bad news. It may not feel great, but it's not necessarily bad news. God's people were not a majority in Persia. In the story that we read this morning in the book of Esther, God's people were a minority, but God worked to save all of them. You want to see God at work? You want to see God doing something? You want God to use you? Then don't be afraid. Step out, build relationships with the people that you know need Christ or the people you suspect need Christ, and you allow God to use you to reach them. We are exiles. We've always been exiles. Hasn't always felt like it. It's been been pretty comfortable being a Christian in the United States for the most part. For many people, for for many it hasn't, but for, for a lot it has. It's not going to be as comfortable for many going forward. That does not mean that God is not at work. It does not mean that God is not going to be at work. And it does not mean that God will not answer us in the perhaps. If we will chase him and live as if he means something to
0: us. Thank you for listening to today's message. To learn more or to contribute through online giving, please visit www.mzbc.org. If you enjoyed this message and would like to hear more, simply click on the Sermons tab or subscribe to the Simple Truth Podcast through iTunes. Thank you for supporting Mount Zion, where you are welcome, wanted, and needed.